There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. I'm Adam Ward, and this is Here at Haas, a student-run podcast connecting you to all Haasies and the faculty that change our lives. This week on Here at Haas, we are joined by Tiffany Schumate, EW MBA class of 2023 and executive director of Hack the Hood, an organization which connects low-income young people of color and local small businesses through technology in order to create opportunities for all the people who live in the Bay Area and beyond. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Thank you, Adam. I'm happy to be here. For those listening, I'm going to let you on a little bit of a secret. Tiffany and I have a monthly walk and talk where we jump on the phone, have a little conversation. And I'm super excited to bring this month's conversation to the podcast because I always learn so much from you. Yes, I feel similarly. And then I get (laughs) off those calls and I'm just happy. So these are good things. Well, Tiffany, I was looking on your LinkedIn and I saw the three words that you defined yourself with, which was educator, strategist and leader. And I would love if you could share a little bit about your story. I know you grew up in New Jersey and why education is such an important part of, of your life. Education for me is the battleground of equity. And so when I think about my identity as an educator and how I started my career, it really started off thinking about how do we make equitable learning spaces Mm -hmm. so that marginalized communities can really have access to different opportunities. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm from Newark, New Jersey, and this is a city that is predominantly African-American, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Latinx. Mm -hmm. But I really grew up in a low-income community. Mm -hmm. I went to Newark Public Schools K through eight, and even though they were underfunded, I mm-hmm. had excellent teachers. Mm. And when I think about what made them excellent, it was beyond the textbooks. Mm. It was more about we're here so that you can become somebody. And I remember that phrase being a big part of my childhood. So education, I just came back to it. I didn't anticipate that, but you go back to your roots. And so here I am. So when you're starting your career, what sort of decisions did you make to live that dream of working in education? My first year out of undergrad, I was pretty lucky. I graduated in 2008 and I ended up in Washington, D.C. on a fellowship. I'm not sure if you've heard of the Truman Scholarship, Mm. but they take about 70 juniors nationally who are interested in public service and they support us through graduation. So once a Truman, always a Truman. And when I graduated, I started working at a social policy center as a Truman Fellow. And it was there where I really started to decide, okay, I think I'm turning towards education. I graduated thinking I wanted to go into policy. I wanted to be in DC. I was really excited about that. But the work that I was doing brought me back. I was doing research on the disproportionate number of African-American, Latino, and indigenous children in the foster care systems. Mm. And it was very different. I had come from a place where I was really passionate about young people and development, but I didn't know I'd end up at a social policy center like this. But the turning point was, and I go back to this often, I was able to meet with five young men who were in a juvenile justice center in D.C. And they talked about something I remember one of them said to me. He said, my teachers could have helped me. Mm. 
And that phrase will always stick with me. They were between the ages of 15 and 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And they were also foster youth. But I thought about this intersection of juvenile justice and child welfare reform. How can Mm -hmm. schools come in to support? Because schools are community centers. Mm -hmm. And from there, I really started to research that. I got really into education policy. What does that look like on Mm -hmm. the ground? I transitioned from the Social Policy Center and decided to work for DC Public Schools. Mm -hmm. And so I worked in the Office of Special Education because I was really interested in how do we make sure the most marginalized young people are brought to the center. When we're designing policy, how do Mm -hmm. we make sure that we have those voices and those experiences in mind? And it goes back to that young man who I met. And teachers are such a huge influence. I love when you talked about that schools are communities. We can all remember some of our favorite teachers. I'm sure we're all thinking of a few right now. But what can that teacher do? You know, you said that person was like, my teacher could have helped me. What are the key things that teachers could be doing to help? I think it builds out in terms of schools as systems. Mm -hmm. So for example, from his perspective, his teachers could have helped him. But what I heard was, what is the role of the school? What Mm -hmm. is the role of education in that? So when I was a teacher, uh, I taught right outside of D.C. And then I also taught a little bit in Trenton, New Jersey. And I think my role as a teacher was really, yes, to teach them. But Mm -hmm. beyond that, really hear and understand where my students were coming from. And I know that may sound intangible or not as action oriented, but I spent a lot of time just listening to my kids. Mm. You know, sometimes we think that our lives are stressful and hectic, Mm. etc. But when I was working with young people who were living in inner cities, young people who were in places that had been forgotten and underfunded, Mm -hmm. there was a lot there. And so that's what I can say in terms of teaching. But in terms of the school system and Mm -hmm. what I've learned as a leader and as an educator, I think schools have a huge responsibility in supporting their communities. And what do I mean by that? For example, when I was a campus director in East Oakland, I worked at a middle school. Mm -hmm. And it was part of a community that was just really close-knit, but -hmm. there had been a lot of history there that had happened with some of the students and the community members. So what we had decided to do was to start opening up our building after school, Mm -hmm. starting at 2.45. And of course, there was free dinner, free food. And students who even weren't members of our school were able to come in and get that food, Mm -hmm. come in and have those activities, come in and really feel part of a community. So we turned our school essentially into a community center Mm -hmm. because students didn't have a lot to do after school. There, it wasn't the safest neighborhood, so we created that space for them. I use the word community a lot when I'm talking about education Mm -hmm. because, again, going back to what I said at the beginning, this is the battleground for equity. So if I have students who are in this neighborhood that I know do Mm -hmm. not have a number of resources, what can we provide as an organization, as a community, and as a school to them? I'm really interested in your journey from the social policy work in DC to being an actual practitioner and being in the schools and seeing it. What was that like, (laughs) having that journey? It's something that I keep in mind now. I always say no matter what role I have, I want to make sure that I have a pulse on what's happening in Mm -hmm. the world. 
And oftentimes I find myself getting caught up in what are the things that I need to know to run this organization and the financial management aspects. All of those are really important, but the product, the goal, our mission is the heart of it. So when I transitioned from social policy into a practitioner, I was interested in education policy, but I didn't want to do it unless I had been in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my journey from the social policy center to the Office of Special Education and then to the classroom. It's a reverse journey, right? Like starting with policy, going to the district, then going into the right. classroom, but it really informed my mm. view. So by the time I got to the classroom, I had the knowledge of education policy and special education policy. I had the knowledge of working in the Office of Special Education for the district and knowing how to operate, mm -hmm. understanding how policies are written and what you need to do to ensure that your voice is heard. So I brought that with me to the classroom. That's awesome. And Tiffany, I'm interested in the advice that you'd have for people who want to work in education or education policy, given your experiences, what recommendations would you have to people listening to pursue their goals in that area? I think it's really important when we think about policy that we understand it's beyond the words on the piece of paper, mm -hmm. that it impacts lives. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe that it's important to be in the trenches, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase, before you become a policy writer. Something that I experienced, I lived in DC for five years, and something that I experienced there when I was working at the Social Policy Center was that I was on a team of lawyers, mm. but they were lawyers who had worked with children in foster care directly, mm -hmm. who had also been social workers, lawyers who had been activists mm -hmm. in the 70s and the 80s. So they came to social policy with experience in the world versus mm -hmm. I wanted to graduate and right. go directly into ed <laughs> policy. Like my vision was I'm going to become the secretary of education, but not before having those experiences. So that's that's the advice that I would give. Really ground yourself mm -hmm. in the work that you want to do beyond the reading, right? right? Ground yourself in the experiences and who you're going to impact. So my background's in politics. When you think about great politicians, it's always people who've had that life experience before just going into... I, that phrase will really stick with me. It's going beyond the words that's on the page. I think that's really powerful, Tiffany. Uh, I wanted to talk about your role now as executive director at Hack the Hood, because this brings a lot of these stories yes. together. Can you, for people listening, you know, I gave a little bit about it in the intro, but would love to understand more about that organization and, and what sure. you do with it. Yes. So Hack the Hood was founded in 2013 with the mission to introduce young people of color to technology through web design. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that you'd have this double bottom line mission where you're teaching young people how to design websites, mm -hmm. but then in turn, they design websites for small business owners mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. So that's how it started, like an introductory program to web development technology. But that was in 2013. And technology has shifted a lot and quickly since then. So my vision coming in was how do we bring this organization to supporting students and understanding the future of work? How do we make sure that we are preparing them not just for careers today, but giving them skill sets that are going to live beyond their jobs today? I remember reading a statistic saying that I think it was something like over 40% of the young people who are in high school now are going to have jobs that don't even exist right now. Oh, wow. 
So to think about that, to really think about that number, but also thinking about how do we ensure that we're building them up for that is Mm -hmm. really important to me. I think this is a fact and people know this, but when you look around our nation, the students who do not have access to quality education are from certain groups, Mm -hmm. low-income backgrounds, certain racial groups. So when I think about Hack the Hood in our future, I'm thinking about what's the actual technology skill set that they need so that Mm -hmm. they're ready. So what we're focusing on right now Again, still introducing students to technology. We're still working with small business owners, but really thinking about what about Python as a second language? How do we make sure that you're leaving our program with a basic understanding of technology fundamentals? What about data science and data literacy, right? Data analytics, how are you ensuring that when you see the world or when you understand numbers, you know how to use those to make an assessment, how to read your community in numbers. For example, I used to talk to my students all the time about the number of grocery stores in East Oakland versus hospitals and what that says about policy. What does that say about your neighborhood? What does that say and tell you that you should talk to your council members about, right? Mm -hmm. And get students really involved in that way. I think of tech education for young people of color as a tool to build for the sustainability of our futures. Mm -hmm. Full stop, tech is a tool. And I think so often I meet young people who hear the word tech and think Mark Zuckerberg and not themselves. And so that's the mission of Hack the Hood, continuing that, but really bringing students and community members, offering and providing them technology fundamentals that are really going to support them today, but really ensure that they're prepared for the future of work. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's very easy to work in downtown San Francisco, one of the tech buildings, and then actually not think about the way that people don't necessarily feel part of that word tech. Yeah, that's my journey. And I... Adam, I didn't think that I would be in tech education. I came here to work in schools. Like, that was my goal. I wanted to become a principal, and I was going to get my MBA. That was my goal. But what you just mentioned is exactly how I got into it. I ended up being in East Oakland and being like, we're surrounded by wealth. Mm -hmm. And yet, we don't even have copy paper in the office. I was teaching as a campus director. I worked directly with the principal. But I remember one semester, I was literally teaching a reading intervention class to students who were reading on a second grade level. They were in the eighth grade. They were about to graduate in a storage closet. And it was every day we would come in. And I beautified that storage closet as much (laughs) as I could. I bring in snacks. I bring in music. But I remember going home every day and being like, we're surrounded by wealth and this is not okay. And so that's what actually led me to tech education. I started to go to different events and I ended up in San Francisco at those places and really bringing them into the classroom. But yeah, it's a long winding story, but that's again, battleground for equity there. Tiffany, I listened to a podcast interview. Definitely check it out. It's called On Air. And I found it really interesting. You were talking about how conversations around equity 
first and foremost are connected to money, which makes sense for a lot of people, right? People need to earn, they need to pay rent, they need all these things. That is a way to equity. But perhaps on the other side of businesses, they approach this conversation of equity only through money, right? Like I've been there, like DNI is good for you because it <laughs> makes more money for the team, more products, like all those yeah. things. And I loved you, you mentioned in that interview that we need to change to human centered technologies mm. and putting humans at the center of it. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on how we navigate that that transition from it just being about equity around money to being mm. equity around humans? I'm sure it's a big question, but I would love to hear your thoughts. It is a big question. I'm not sure if I have an answer for it, but I do have some thoughts. So how do we be, make it more human-centered? So there is this study called Gender Shades that came out in 2018 about computer vision uh, and artificial intelligence. And what the study says is that basically it's more accurate for lighter skinned faces versus darker skinned faces. This is something that we're learning now. Human centered technology takes that approach where beyond just the creators that are working and designing it, they're actually creating for a community, creating for all. And what that means is that technology would not have been released if humans were at the center of it. So if you were taking a sample literally of our community, mm -hmm. you would have known that, right? And made mm -hmm. some changes so that the accuracy was higher across the board. But instead, that didn't happen. And instead, we're going back and trying to figure it out and took a study by two women of color mm -hmm. to make that public. Mm -hmm. to call out Amazon around mm -hmm. their facial recognition work, mm -hmm. to really call out larger tech companies around that work. And so when I think of human-centered products, I think of the designers really having that at heart, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's beyond efficiency, it's beyond, mm -hmm. oh, this is gonna make us money right now for our self-driving cars. It goes into questions around ethics. Mm -hmm. Is this safe? Mm -hmm. If this car cannot see darker skin, what does that mean for yeah. self-driving cars? So that's just a small example, but I really think it's going back to who's creating the products, who's designing it, and making sure that more voices are part of that design. Mm -hmm. But also once the product is released, making sure that it's tested and right. shared with humans, <laughs> like a community <laughs> yeah. that's beyond <laughs> just one group. So yeah, I have more thoughts about that, but that's difficult, right? That's not a sole solution. I exactly. think it's part of a multi-pronged solution around human-centered tech. Exactly, and it's messier, right? Because humans are just messier. It's not it an algorithm. Messy. <laughs> it can't be an al Maybe the algorithm is part of it, but there's more to it. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's messy. Absolutely. And Tiffany, congratulations with this work at um, Hack the Hood. You've been recognized as a 40 under 40 in the San Francisco Business Times, which is awesome. What was that like? I've, you hear all these lists and the whatever, 25 under 25 or whatever. What was it like to win one of those awards? <laughs> it feels a little weird, I'll be honest. Listen, I'm an educator and I want to put my head down and do the work. This is really about making sure that our world is equitable. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to be recognized for that. I'm excited to meet the other folks on the list. And okay, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> like, all right, what's next? We have a lot to get done, but I'm really excited about it. I think so the other people on the list are just incredible. And so beyond that, 
it's more like another network, another community to get to know people who are really doing the work and who are passionate in this space in the Bay Area. Tiffany, to me, you really exemplify the, the Haas value of beyond yourself. So with that, I really wanted to move to a conversation about moving to Haas. And I love this post that you did recently on LinkedIn, where you talked about a conversation that you have with Dr. Alida Batista, who is the current interim chief diversity, equity and inclusion officer at Haas. And she, apparently, I won't take the story from you, but she told you to write down your vision, why Haas, and return to it regularly. So I was hoping you might share with us yeah. what your vision for choosing an MBA, for choosing Haas, what it is and start with that and then maybe see if it's changed um, since you've started as well. Yes. I'd like to say first that applying to business school was a six year journey for me. Mm. All of the things, I was nervous about all of them that I'm sure we all <laughs> share. But when I applied, it was really about, okay, I have this education background. I am social impact to my core, but what about budgets? What about raising money? What about financial management? Something that I had seen throughout my career, and at the time I had been in education for about 10, 11 years, was that we'd have incredible leaders, but there was such mismanagement of money. Mm -hmm. And so how do we make sure that we're putting our money towards student outcomes? How do mm -hmm. we make sure that where we are, but where our line items are, what we're budgeting for actually has impact? And I didn't get a lot of training in that as an educator. I didn't get a lot of training in that even as a campus leader or a campus director. And so coming to business school was really about thinking with more of a business mindset mm -hmm. around outcomes and metrics and getting the discipline that I needed around financial management. I'm in an intro to finance class right now, last <laughs> it's term. It's, it's tough. tough, but I'm like, this is why you came, Tiffany. This is what you wrote about. So stick it out, do the homework. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's why I'm here. How has it shifted for me? As I mentioned, just being in tech education, thinking about communities, again, they're all connected, mm -hmm. right? It's also beyond the US. So when I got into tech education, it, I started to look at what are other countries doing? Mm -hmm. How are they preparing their young people for the future? And I started to look at West African countries because mm -hmm. there's a huge startup culture there. and here's a continent that just leapfrogged to the mobile era. And what can we learn from countries like that? So when I think about business now, and I think about what I wanna do in the future, yes, it's about making sure that I understand financial management and making sure that we're committed to outcomes and metrics, but it's really about if this is a global issue around preparation mm -hmm. for the future of work, how can I become a global leader in mm -hmm. understanding that? A global leader in building partnerships that really impact that, right? As I mentioned, I'm talking about women, I'm talking about students from low-income backgrounds. There are so many groups right now that are marginalized mm -hmm. or if we don't act now, will mm -hmm. continue to be taken out of the workforce here in the US, but this is a global issue. So when I think about it in that sense, I want to understand what's going on in Ghana. I want to mm -hmm. understand what's going on in South Africa and realize, okay, are there lessons that we can learn to take on here? And are there lessons that we have to mm -hmm. also offer? I came to Haas specifically because there is that international mindset mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. We do have that aspect. I want to be a leader 
that is thinking of beyond myself, but beyond this country. I think there's a lot of work and a lot of investment to happen here, but I really want to really hone in on that global mindset. So that's what brought me to Haas. That's why I'm here. I think that story will continue to shift. But yeah, that's where I am. I find it interesting when you talked about that mind shift of or that mindset of people in America learning what happens in other countries because being a Brit sometimes I'm in team meetings I'm like there are other countries outside the U.S. but I wanted to double down you said you've done some research on Ghana and technology and inclusion and, and bringing people in with technology what, what have you learned in your initial studies of Ghana that we could Absolutely. The last job that I had, I worked at an organization called AI for All. Our mission was to increase diversity in artificial intelligence. So I wanted to open up a partnership with a Ghanaian university because mm. why not? We why were not? working with a number of great universities here in the U.S. and it's an organization that was really looking to expand. When I got to Ghana, there were two meetings that I had that really were impactful on how I think about this. One, I met with this technology company and they were great, they were incredible, but something that they said was, we're having difficulty connecting with the universities mm -hmm. and connecting with faculty and understanding their work and what they're doing in terms of computer science and artificial intelligence. The second meeting that I had was with a university faculty member who mentioned how nervous he was that mm. his students weren't being prepared for jobs like that. Mm. And those were exactly his words. Maybe our students aren't being prepared for jobs like that. And he had talked about their curriculum being outdated. And in my mind, it was such a clear issue, like pathway issue, where I was just like, you all just need to talk to each other mm -hmm. and then ensure that the curriculum you're providing is making sure that students are graduating with the skill set they need to be hired for a job like that. So in terms of what I learned there, it was more about, and this is so basic, but I think from the perspective of, and again, I don't work for this company, but mm -hmm. for the perspective of the technology company, if I'm coming into a new space, it is my responsibility to understand the community mm -hmm. and what I can provide. Mm -hmm. It is my responsibility to think about my staffing, mm -hmm. think about the talent that I'm going to recruit. If I'm in a new area, I want that talent. Right. And if that talent is going to be ready, and if that talent is really going to drive the development of technology, you need to make sure that their training is up mm -hmm. to par. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, it was a seamless connection between the tech company and the university. Bringing that back here to the U.S. and thinking about the work that I had done when I first came to the Bay Area, my whole vision, like even at Hack the Hood now, this mm -hmm. is the work that we're doing. We have conversations with recruiters and tech companies and we talk about our young people and we talk mm -hmm. about the skill sets that they bring. And if we are recruiting and we are thinking about how do we make sure that we're being equitable, but we're also making sure that we're creating products that are human-centered, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. our recruitment has to be human-centered mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. way and reflect that. The way we go about recruitment has to be equitable. And so those are the lessons that I'm bringing back. But I think they work both ways, right? We're here in the Bay Area. That was in Accra. Mm -hmm. Similar issues but solutions can be designed differently. And Tiffany, given all your expertise and experience, 
I was hoping to hear any thoughts that you had around recruitment when it comes to MBAs and maybe in particular mm. Berkeley, because let's be honest, the class right now is not an accurate representation of the community around us. That is fair to say. And the university recognizes that and is putting in a lot of effort to improve that as all of us the job is not done and the job will never be done it's a continual process but what advice do you have for the Haas program to improve equity and improve the representation of, of the community around it I think one of them is a financial issue that financial barrier I'm just taking on loans and closing my eyes right because I know at the end of the day here's the goal etc I also have a job right now and have financial support that is enabling me to do that and a future that is enabling me to do that students from different backgrounds may not have that so thinking about the finances I think is one secondly I decided to come to Haas after I think it was a session that they had one weekend, a diversity and MBA session, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I had come to a few of those at other universities we will not name. But what really stood out to me was this commitment to grow and get better. Mm -hmm. And the realization that we're not where we're supposed to be right, right. now, uh, but we want to get better. So when I think about recruitment and bringing in more students and diversifying the student body, I think it really has to do with finding them, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. really going out to search for them. Like where are the places you usually recruit from now go to the opposite place, right? Where are the places you usually go who already know about Haas now commit to another area. Recruitment is hard. I worked in college admissions for about three years and mm -hmm. it is hard. It's hard because there are bottom lines that need mm -hmm. to be fulfilled, right? Schooling is a business. We mm -hmm. understand that. And I think for a school like Haas that is committed to social impact, a school that does have values the way we have values, it is our responsibility to start looking at innovative ways to recruit. I know sometimes they get students to support in recruiting, and I think that's a huge deal. That's a plus. But it's going to have to come from the office mm -hmm. of admissions directly. And there are some incredible people who I've met in admissions. Shout out to Ohm, who is incredible. I know two years ago, I actually had coffee with one of the admission officers, and it meant so much to mm -hmm. me because I wanted to talk about how nervous I was mm -hmm. and how, I don't know if I'm Haas material, X, Y, Z, here are the thing. And he sat with me for an hour. Mm -hmm. That was supposed to be a 20 minute coffee and he <laughs> sat with me for an hour. So when we're thinking about recruitment, it's gonna take time. There's mm -hmm. not always an efficient way or an algorithm to do it quickly, but the investment is there and I see it. I wanna think more about that answer though if you have any more thoughts let me know maybe we can talk about it in our in our walk next month awesome Tiffany I've loved this conversation and I think a, a theme that's come throughout actually is this power of those conversations right you talked about the conversation that a teacher in a school might have with a person when they were younger you've just reflected on that experience that you had with a MBA person from the office of admissions right how these conversations and as we march forward with tech which can sometimes take away some of those things that we shouldn't be losing that. So it's a great reminder that conversations like this is where there really is power and we shouldn't be neglectful of the power of words and, and human interaction. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. It's transformative.
And Tiffany, we like to finish these here at House Conversations just with a quick and um, one or two lightning questions. So I just wanted to ask you, we're a year into this pandemic, we're still at home. Has there been, I know you've started a job, you've been very busy, you've started an MBA, so there is no expectations, but have there been any hobbies or anything that you picked up that you wouldn't have done had, it, had you not been at home all the time? Yes. I bought a bike. Oh, nice. <laughs> I haven't had a bike since childhood, and that has been a lifesaver. So, Turk is my bike. Where do you both go? Just around the... Uh... Just around the neighborhood, right around Lake Merritt, go down to Jack London, come back up Broadway. This is a great biking neighborhood, meaning it's pretty flat. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I, I I was training for AIDS life cycle before it was cancelled. Oh. <laughs> the number of hills in this San Francisco, I was so not prepared for. Tiffany, it's been so wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Adam. Of course. Thank you, Tiffany. And thank you to you for tuning in to Hear at Haas. Know a Haasi that has a story to tell? Nominate them on our website, haaspodcast.org. And if you enjoy this week's episode, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. It really does help. And of course, share this episode with your favorite bears. Until next time, I'm Adam Ward, and this is Here at Haas.